there's two things that really amaze me. One is God and the other is people. Now, God amazes me in a very positive way, just the way that he provides uh, for his children and the fact that he can just forgive uh, the many, many, many things that I do that I shouldn't be doing. Uh, just the miracles, you know, people getting healed and uh, just, you know, again, providing in ways that we certainly wouldn't expect. And, all, and most of all is his grace that, you know, God accepts us just like we are, you know, because we we couldn't get to a point where God would say, okay, you know, you're, you're good enough. Now I can accept you. He accepts us with all of the flaws that we have, and they are many and varied. But then people, now people amaze me in positive ways. And just some of the things that have been invented you know, I see something, you know, wow, how did somebody come up with it? You know, one thing that really I can never figure out when you go to the doctor and, you know, the nurse is taking your vitals, your blood pressure and all that, and she puts this thing on your finger and it tells you your oxygen level. Now, how in the world did anybody ever come up with that? You know, I, that just blows me away. Uh, just the courage that some people have. You know, you read of people in battle that you know, men th throw themselves on a hand grenade to protect those around them and they lose their lives. And just uh, the love that people uh, can have and just how amazing love is in itself. But people also amaze me in very negative ways. You know, there's some people that they do something and you think, you know, Wow, you know, did they really think that was going to be a good idea, or did they really think that was going to work out in a in a good way, that they would try and do that, and the, the selfishness of people, just, um, you know, I, I want more and more and more, you know, you, you know, you've got that and I want that, uh, whatever it may be, but I, I think the biggest thing that amazes me is the prejudice of people that somebody can look at another person and just because of the, the color of their skin or the way they talk or the, you know, the fact that they don't know English um, or somebody that's maybe disabled uh, in some way and the prejudice that that can bring, you know, it just really amazed me. Well, God created us to be like him because it tells us in, in Genesis 1, says it will create man in our image. You know, we've really blown it because I'm certainly not the image of God. And I know that God knew what he was doing, okay? And he knew how off track that we would get. But as believers, we need to get back on track. And that needs to happen like yesterday. Okay, it needs to happen now. Let's pray. Father, I just give you thanks that you did create us the way you did. That Lord, you always know what you're doing and you always know the results of what you're doing before you do it. And so Father, you knew that we would be stubborn people. You knew that we would be people that would be selfish and be prejudiced against one another. But Lord, you made us anyways. 
So, Father, I just praise you for that. So, Lord, as we look at your word today, Father, help us to see what, what you want us to get out of this, what we need to learn or we need to be reminded of. So, Father, as always, open our ears, our minds, our hearts, and just let your Holy Spirit work. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I can't speak for you, but I often feel really insignificant. You know, you can go to world, worldometers.info and see the world population in real time. You know, it's clicking off the births and the deaths. And, you know, when I looked a few days ago, it was just below 7.9 billion people. And I'm just me. You know, I'm one in almost 8 million people, you know, like that needle in the haystack. And there's nothing amazing or significant about me. You know, I've made no great discoveries. I, I haven't uh, come out with any, you know, tremendous earth-shattering statements of any kind. You know, there's nothing memorable about me. You know, if I were to die today, my wife and kids would remember me. And, you know, some of the, the older grandchildren would remember me. But, you know, the male life expectancy, it says, is 70.9 years. Okay, 71. Well, I'm 72, so I'm living on borrowed time. But I know that in almost 8 billion people, God can pick me out. He has me, he has his eye on me, he has his hand on me, just plain little old me. And that God cares about me. Listen to Psalm 139, 1 through 6. This is from the message. It says, God, investigate my life. Get all the facts firsthand. I'm an open book to you. Even from a distance, you know what I'm thinking. You know when I leave and when I get back. I'm never out of your sight. You know everything I'm going to say before I start the first sentence. I look behind me and you're there. Then up ahead, you're there too. Your, reassure, your reassuring presence coming and going. This is too much, too wonderful. I can't take it all in. You know, to me, that's both reassuring and scary at the same time. Reassuring because I need God all the time and I need to know that he's right there. But it's scary because sometimes I think, you know, he's right there. And he's listening to what I'm saying. He's seeing how I act. He's looking at the things I'm doing and the things I'm neglecting that I should be doing. But I know, overall, it certainly is the best thing. Now, I want to share a passage with you that I know that I have read many times. I've maybe in the past given a message on it at some time, someplace. But God pointed out something that I'd never thought about before. Okay, now, this is in Luke 8, and Jesus had just calmed the sea after being woken up. Okay, he was out and he was sleeping in the boat, and the disciples all said, oh, we're going to drown, we're going to drown, and Jesus calmed the storm. So 
now it says they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes across the lake from Galilee. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. For a long time he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside the town. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down in front of him. Then he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Please, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirits to come out of him. The spirit had often taken control of the man, even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles. He simply broke them and rushed out into the wilderness, completely under the demon's power. <coughs> Jesus demanded, What's your name? Legion, he replied, for he was filled with many demons. The demons kept begging Jesus not to send them into the bottomless pit. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby, and the demons begged him to let them enter into the pigs. So Jesus gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw it, they fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and perfectly sane. They were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And all the people in the region of the Gerasenes begged Jesus to go away and leave them alone, for a great wave of fear swept over them. So Jesus returned to the boat and left, crossing back to the other side of the lake. Okay, so what was my big revelation in this? Well, it was the end of verse 37. Okay, I had to go through all that to get to that. Because verse 37 says, So Jesus returned to the boat and left, crossing back over to the other side of the lake. So what's the big deal? I mean, Jesus had gotten into, into the boat in Galilee. He'd calmed the storm on the way to the Gerasenes. He'd healed one man and went back to Galilee. Well, I don't know. I still don't get it. I have no doubt that Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew that that one man needed him. So he took his disciples on a trip that they thought was going to be their death. And he knew the end results in Gerasenes. It doesn't tell us this, but I wonder, what were the disciples thinking? Like, we came all the way over here. We almost died on the middle of this lake. And now we're going back just for this one guy? Well, what this passage tells me is this. This one man was important to Jesus. Okay, This one man needed to be healed. And Jesus was obviously the only one that could do it. And so because 
we know this, we know that we are important to Jesus. Okay? So they got in the boat in Galilee, almost drowned on the way over to Gerasenes, healed this guy, got in the boat, went back to Galilee. Okay? Just for one guy. Okay, verses 38 and 39 tell us this. The man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him home saying, No, go back to your family and tell them everything that God has done for you. So he went all through the town proclaiming the great things that Jesus had done for him. Now, it doesn't say that this man had become a leader in the church or he'd become a distinguished person in the town. It does tell us that he was spreading the miracle that he had been part of. So this passage tells me two things. One, I'm important to God. Okay? Out of the almost 8 billion people in the world, I am important to God. And the second thing it tells me is I need to tell others about the great things that God has done for me. So I want to look at those two parts. First, we cannot think of ourselves as insignificant. Okay, because God does not see any of us that way. Even a demon-possessed man, even an aging, retired man. So if you're rich or poor, if you're suffering physically or mentally, if you're maybe blind or deaf, or maybe you're highly intelligent or, you know, you're really kind of slow learning, even if you have Down syndrome, even if you're autistic, no matter your race or your nationality, we're all equally important to God, okay? Nobody gets to the head of the line, okay? We're all equally important to God. The second thing the Lord brought to my attention was to tell people about Jesus. The man had to be healed for that to happen. Everybody was afraid of this guy. I mean, they had him under guard, had him in chains and shackles, and he would just break them. Everybody was afraid of this guy. Okay, and the man had no story to tell. Okay, nobody wants to, to hear about how you're possessed by many demons. But before Jesus, he was lost, just like me. And when Jesus healed him, then he had a story to tell because he had been that man. Like it told us in the passage, okay, the people came out and this guy was sitting at Jesus' feet. He was perfectly sane. He was dressed, something that hadn't happened in a long time. People were able to get near him without fear. Okay, so this guy really, he was no more lost than I was. His story is different, but maybe in a lot of ways, not that much. I was full of demons as well. You know, I suffered from lack of compassion. I was selfish. I worried about, you know, what's going to happen, or what if this happens, or what if this doesn't happen, and all that. And I was full of fear, you know, just afraid of, you know, 
the direction my life was going and and what was going to be happening with me and our family and, and all. And so I'd still be there if not for Jesus, just like the naked man in the tombs. But since we're set free, we both have a job to do. Proclaim the gospel. The Greek here for, for proclaiming is keruso, which means to herald, to publish, to proclaim, to preach. The man wanted to go with Jesus, but Jesus knew that he would be able to do more where he was. Okay, so we need to understand why Jesus didn't let him go. Because this was an area of the Gerasenes, and that was a Gentile area. That man was a Gentile, he wasn't a Jew. So Jesus took his disciples on this trip to heal this non-Jewish man. But that's why Jesus told the man to go and tell others what had happened, because they would listen to him. Okay, he was like an indigenous evangelist or an indigenous missionary that he'd be able to tell his story to people that they'd seen him. Okay, they knew what he was before. You know, I mean, they didn't go around that part of the town at all because they knew they were going to be confronted by this guy and, you know, who knew what was going to happen. And so the people in that area, they knew all about him. And so now they knew all about the new man. So that's why Jesus told the man to let others know what had happened. Now, we find other times that Jesus told people that he had healed to say nothing. Okay, in Mark 1.44, Jesus had healed a man from leprosy. And Jesus said, don't tell anyone about this. Okay, that's because they were in Galilee, which is Jewish territory. And he knew how it was or was not going to be accepted by those that he would be talking to. So throughout the Gospels, we find many people that Jesus did just one thing for. But he added something to what he had done for them. Okay, in Matthew 8, Jesus heals a leper and he said to him, don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. Okay, so Jesus is saying, don't go out telling everybody, but just go to the priest, take the offering, have the priest examine you, and then it's kind of like getting a card saying, you know, I've been healed. In John 9, Jesus healed a man born blind by making mud from his saliva. And then he told the man, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Okay, he could have been healed just by Jesus saying you're healed or just by Jesus touching his eyes. But Jesus made up this mud from his saliva and the dust on the ground and put it on the man's eyes and then told him to go to the pool of Siloam. He didn't say, just go wash yourself someplace. He said, no, I want you to go from here. I want you to go to the pool of Siloam. I don't know how far that was, but you know, probably somebody had to lead him to get him there. 
So the man went and washed, and he could see. He couldn't see before that, but now he could. In Matthew 9, Jesus heals two blind men by touching their eyes and says, says to them, don't tell anyone about this. But instead, they went out and spread his fame all over the region. Each of these people needed just one thing, and there was just one person who could do it. There was a time that this was very evident. In Luke 9, there was a demon-possessed boy. His father took him to the disciples. They couldn't drive the demon out. Okay, so in, in Luke 9, 40, it says, I begged your disciples to cast out the spirit, but they couldn't do it. But Jesus did. He was the one who always could. Even with Jesus' first recorded miracle in Cana of Galilee, water into wine at the wedding. In John 2, Mary wanted Jesus to do the miracle. And his first response was, my time has not yet come. There was probably a large gathering for this wedding because these wedding feasts lasted like a week. So many would come to know what Jesus had done and he thought it was probably better to wait. But, you know, he was a good son and mom asked him to do it. So she wanted him to do just one thing to help others. No gain for her, no gain for Jesus. Well, maybe you're like this woman in John 8, the adulterous woman. I'm not saying you committed adultery, okay? But maybe your situation was kind of like hers. Okay, you remember she was caught in the act of adultery. She was ashamed. She'd been accused. She was embarrassed and she was dragged before Jesus. The Pharisees didn't care about her or the man, wherever he was. They just wanted Jesus. They just wanted to try and catch him doing something that they thought he shouldn't do. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus didn't heal the woman, but there's no doubt that he changed her. She went from the fear of losing her life to a new life. And what one thing did Jesus tell her to do? Go and sin no more. He didn't tell her to go and talk to the priest. He didn't tell her to make an offering. He didn't tell her to go wash someplace special. What he told her to do was change your life. Now, we don't hear this woman again. We have no idea. We don't know if she asked Jesus if she could be one of his followers, but we know that her life had to be changed. Well, Peter needed one big thing. And he had denied Jesus just as predicted. And Peter needed forgiveness. And he received it threefold. Jesus never said, Peter, I forgive you. Instead, he inquired about Peter's love for him three times. Each time, he gave Peter instructions, tend to the flock in three different ways. Saul needed just one thing from Jesus, and he was not denied. What he received helped Jesus change the world. Saul needed a new life, a salvation life, 
and he got it in dramatic fashion, along with a new name. What just one thing do you need the Lord to do for you? A healing? Maybe a physical healing? Maybe emotional? Maybe it's a spiritual healing that you need. Jesus can do that one thing, just what you need, exactly when needed. He's waiting for you to ask. But you must ask in the right way. James writes this to us in chapter 1, beginning in the first verse. It says, what's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires of war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. That sound a little familiar? I mean, not the killing and waging war part, but the rest of it. But are we asking? And if we're asking, are we asking for the right reasons? <coughs> Excuse me. I certainly know I can relate to this. My motives have often been wrong in asking. We ask God for things to benefit ourselves, not thinking about others. We did a devotional recently that dealt with this. If God does this for you, how will it affect others? Okay, because a lot of times we go to God and say, okay, God, you know, this is what I need, or, you know, I want you to do that. And, you know, we don't think about the whole picture because you, you may pray for a, a week of sunny, dry weather because you're going to the beach or you're going to be, you know, you got a lot of stuff you need to do outside. You're putting a new roof on your house, whatever it might be. But while you're praying for this sunny, dry weather, there's farmers that are praying for rain because their crops are just about dead. God always sees these things through. And I need to as well. Then comes the next big. What do I need to do for the Lord? Remember this. The man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with Jesus, but he sent him home saying, no, go back to your family and tell them everything God has done for you. That may very well be what God expects from each of his children, for us to go and to tell our family what Jesus has done for us, to go and tell our neighbors, to tell our fellow students or co-workers or people in our bingo club or whatever it might be, that we need to tell them what Jesus has done for us. Jesus made a stormy trip to help one man that needed just one thing. Jesus knew exactly what the man needed. Like Paul or Saul, he may have received a new name. He certainly received a new life, a life in Christ. <coughs> maybe you have that life, but you know, maybe you need a new name. There's a song, I think of it as a Southern Gospel song, but it's kind of goes like this. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. And the white-robed angels sing the story 
a sinner has come home. For there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it is mine. With my sins forgiven, I am bound for heaven, never more to roam. Let's pray. Lord, I lift up my brothers and sisters that know you and love you and serve you. But Lord, we all have those times in our lives when we need that just one thing. I mean, we need things from you all the time, every day, but we come up against this one big thing that we need. Father, help us to know that we can come to you and we can ask you and help us to not be selfish in our asking. Lord, help us to, to see how the results will work out for everyone, not just for ourselves. And Lord, if there's anyone that's listening that, that doesn't know you, I pray that today will be the day that they come to know you as Lord and Savior, that today will be the day that they turn their life over to you. And it's a simple thing to do. Some people think it's just too easy. There's got to be more to it, but there's not. Your word tells us that we just need to, to believe that Jesus is your son, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that he rose from the dead, and that he's coming again. So we need to pray kind of like this. Father, I know I'm a sinner, and I know I need a Savior. And the only Savior that there is is your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that he died for my sins. I thank you that he loves me just like I am and that you accept me just like I am. Father, if I don't know you, this is the just one thing that I need. In Jesus' name, amen.